Our scripture reading this afternoon in connection with the sermon on Lord's Day 49, Your Will Be Done. Our scripture reading is first from Psalm 32 and then from Romans chapter 12. Psalm 32, hear the word of God. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was churned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. In a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart." Then we turn to Romans 12, beginning at verse 1. Paul has outlined for 11 chapters the doctrines of God's grace in Christ. And then he comes to the conclusion in chapter 12, the Word of God. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt with each one of a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And then Lord's Day 49 of the Catechism, which I believe you have arrived at. Lord's Day 49 reads, what is the third petition of the Lord's Prayer? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is... Sorry, I should have paused for that. Grant that we and all men may deny our own will and without any murmuring obey your will, for it alone is good. Grant also that everyone may carry out the duties of his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in 
heaven. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll praise God with the words of hymn 63, stanzas 1 and 4. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it's not too hard, I imagine, to allow this third petition to slip off our tongues. But what is harder is to translate it into our actual experience. The question is, what is this prayer? Your will be done. Is this some kind of prayer of resignation? Are we saying, Lord, we don't know what your will is, but go ahead and may your will be done. Is this some kind of prayer that we utter in the face of accidents or sickness or when you're in the doctor's office and you come out and you know that you have only so many months to live? Lord, whatever it is you would do, let it be. Is that our prayer? No, we're not being surrendered to a Christian kind of fatalism. This is not a defeatist cry of resignation, but it's a plea, if you will, not for resignation, but for reformation. A plea wherein we pray that all creatures in heaven and on earth might just delight to do what God wants them to do. It's one of the supreme joys of the new heaven and new earth. Every creature will just do what God wants him, her, or it to do. And that's the difficulty. If it's a plea for everyone to do what God wants them to do, and if I'm praying this prayer in my life, that means I also have to really attempt to do exactly that. To really pray this prayer is to say that this is your joy and your delight to just do God's will. And lip service is easy when it comes to prayer. Our Lord warns us, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And then it becomes a twofold problem, first one of knowing what it is that God wants of us day by day, and then secondly, just doing it. How can we do what we know we ought to do, and how can we do it faithfully? God's Word comes to you as it has been summarized by the church in the 49th Lord's Day under this theme. In this third petition, the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray for obedience to the Father's will. We pay attention to how we are to know His will and how we are to do His will. How we know His will, how we do His will. Brothers and sisters, the Scriptures tell us all over the place that God is a God who guides us. Think of the Psalm, Psalm 25. The Lord instructs sinners in His ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them His way. Isaiah 58, the Lord will guide you always. Paul says to the Colossians that he has not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And at the end of that letter, he tells them how dear Epaphras, whom they all know, is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. So clearly the idea is that God still guides His people today. The problem is, however, in determining exactly what is God's will. 
Particularly in the last 200 years or so, a belief seems to be widespread that there are all kinds of direct and immediate ways in which God makes His will known to us. Some people seek for visions or voices in which God says, do this or that. Others think for, of, of tongue-speaking Others, after the erroneous style of Gideon, will put out their fleeces and set up situations in which they ask God for signs. God, if I'm to do this, then please do this. And if I'm to do that, please do this. And then there are those who believe that certain thoughts or intuitions that they have come, that they have in their brains, have come directly from God. And so they say to you, you know, God said to me last night, or God laid this burden upon me. That's kind of the end of all discussion, because if God said that, then who are we to say it wasn't so? Still others believe that a certain event or circumstance that came upon them was a sign from God that clearly indicated His will. And others will use the Bible in a kind of lottery fashion, a text which actually means one thing is thought to mean something entirely different because they just happened to read it when a particular matter was on their minds. I remember hearing one of my professors once say he was visiting, he was, he was visiting a friend and the friend said, I was wondering what kind of uh, car I should buy. And then I read... David triumphed over all his enemies, so he went out and bought a triumph. Not a very good car, but a delightful to, to drive, probably. Anyway, to us it may seem peculiar that people would reason in such a fashion, but make no mistake about it. People have made decisions as to who to marry, as to whether to go into the ministry or the mission on the basis of such means. And no doubt there are problems with such an approach. One problem is that such a line of thought not only binds those who believe they must determine God's will in that way, it also binds everybody else. How can you argue with someone who, whom the person's, when the person says that in some such direct fashion the Lord told him or showed him? Who are we to question the Lord's revelation or to throw this person's faith and course of action into turmoil? In the case of those who go into ministry, for instance, how can anyone ask questions about academic qualifications or spiritual gifts and experience when God supposedly spoke so directly, isn't that the end of all discussion? I preached a sermon on Romans 12, and after that, uh, two brothers, two elderly brothers came up to me and said, we got a story for you. One of them had a, had a son who went to seminary, not our seminary, but a seminary, and at that seminary, there was a student who wasn't doing very well, and one of the professors finally said to him, like, why did you ever come to seminary? Why do you want to go into ministry? And he said, well, you know, one day I was out in the field and I was working in the field and I looked up and I saw these clouds and these clouds were, were formed into two letters. The first letter was P and the second letter was C. And I thought, preach Christ. And so he went into ministry. He wasn't a very good student, hence the conversation with the professor. And the other person in the room said, P.C., how do you know it didn't mean plant corn? 
it's a striking thing. In, in, in this respect, people begin to make claims that clearly go beyond that which even happened in the Old or New Testament. It's undoubtedly true that during that time, certain people received direct disclosures of the divine mind, that God would come to them and say, this is what I say, and this is what you should say. In an age when God's Word was not yet written, God would often speak directly to some of His people through visions and dreams or tongues. But we must understand that that privilege was not common for all believers. He didn't speak directly to everybody. It was by and large confined to prophets and leaders of the church who received an audience with God, heard His secrets, and were then faced with the burden of acting as His spokesperson. It was not every member of Israel, not every member of the New Testament church who had access to the will of God in this way, but it was a Moses there on the mountain and a Zechariah on the day of exile or a Paul. The rest of the believing community were not spoken to directly, but they received their guidance from the prophets and from the apostles, even in the New Testament. When the Spirit is poured out upon every believer, it's not every believer that receives special revelation. The early church still has ministers of the Word. It was through prophets, for example, that Barnabas and Paul were called to missionary work in Galatia in Acts 13. It was an apostle who received the Macedonian cry. And how often do the various churches not ask a question of the apostles by letter because they themselves don't know and they cannot determine what the will of the Lord is on this matter. It's a perilous thing to take these experiences of a few individuals in the Scriptures who are called to unique ministries as models for all of us. It doesn't happen so in the Bible, so why should it happen today? And it's precisely because we no longer have prophets and apostles today that the church has come to the conclusion that such methods of revelation have ceased and come to an end. We are not saying we no longer have revelation or that we no longer have the ministry of the apostles and prophets. We have that. We have it in Scripture. The Bible is not a mere record of revelation. The Bible is revelation. It's God's Word for today. Therefore, our confession says rightly in Article 7, for instance, the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in it at length. The Westminster Standards are even clearer, says the Westminster Confession. These former ways of God revealing His Word will unto His people have now ceased. Ask the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. In other words, the reason why God no longer reveals Himself as He did to the apostles and prophets is that in the Bible we have everything we need to know. Says Paul to Timothy, Paul's dying Timothy's a young man. He's got a big task to take care of the church. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed. 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. All you need, Timothy, is there in Scripture. So why do we have, what do we have today? Why is it there is this ever-growing circle of Christians who want to know God's will in a direct and mechanical way? I think it's part of our anti-intellectual, feeling-oriented, short-term mentality of today's secular culture that is invading Christian minds. Today we live in an age of instant this, instant that. Today we push a button for this and we have an app for that. Today we exert ourselves only when the job absolutely has to be done and there's no other way to do it. Well, small wonder then we want the same thing with the will of God. It has to come easy. God better show us directly because we can't be bothered to study and think and exert ourselves to figure out in His face what we should actually be busy doing. What is the problem? Is it not that we forgot that God has moved onwards in the history of redemption and we need to do likewise? There's no doubt that some of these things happened in previous days. At one time, God's people decided difficult issues on the basis of lots. Think of the use of Urim and Thummim in the high, with the high priest. It seems that by means of the use of these stones in the breastplate, breastplate of the high priest, God would make it clear to Israel whether the words of the high priest were from God or, from, or not. There was something mechanical about it. So Proverbs 16 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And in the New Testament, we find that for the replacement of, uh, of Judas Iscariot, lots were used in one way or the other. But notice, it's, that happens before Pentecost and not after Pentecost. That happens before the outpouring of the Spirit and not after the outpouring of the Spirit. Sometimes people say, why do we vote? Why don't we just cast lots? Well, no. God moves on in the history of redemption. And notice that they were not issues that had to do with individual believers. They had to do with office bearers and with the life of the people of God. But the point is, Christians today do not resort to lots or fleeces or other mechanistic means to know God's will. Why not? Because we recognize that these things belong to the infancy of the church of God and not to the new age of the gospel and the full enjoyment of the spirit of sonship. You have been given the spirit of God so that as a son and daughter of God, you may have everything you need to serve Him to the fullest. We recognize that God has spoken in various ways in the past, as Hebrews says, but now He has spoken finally in His Son, Jesus Christ. The implication is we no longer live in the age in which God reveals to us, Himself to us in these ways, but He's revealed His will in Christ, and we will find His guidance enshrined in the pages of Holy Scripture. There's progress in Revelation. As one epoch passes, another one comes into the world. Now that we live in what the New Testament calls the last days, His final way of communicating with us has been deposited with us in the form of 
the Scriptures. I think there's a text for our generation, Psalm 32, two-pointed verses, verse 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And then the ninth verse, don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding. Must be curbed by bit and bridle or they will not stay near you. A horse or a mule needs to be, to be led by, a, by, by reins or a rope. Don't be like that. God expects better from you. God will guide us. His promise of guidance is sure. He will not do it as He does with a horse or mule taking us along. God gave us the ability to think, to discern, and to judge. And even the pouring out of the Holy Spirit doesn't change this as if the Spirit now will put us in a trance and will in that trance figure out how to do this. The Spirit of God has not been given to us to eliminate our minds, but to illuminate our minds and to give us even the mind of Christ. God's promise of guidance is not given to save us the bother of having to think. Many Christians seem to think so. As they plead for guidance, what they are really looking for is a way of knowing God's will, which dispenses with a need for disciplined and rigorous thought, and maybe even dispenses with a need for consulting Holy Scripture. They want it painlessly in some overwhelming supernatural flash. When it comes to the point, it's striking the kind of emphasis that's placed in the Scriptures on the activity of the mind. Paul says in Romans 12 that we, we are not to be conformed to this world. And how, how, how do we manage to avoid that? By the transforming of our minds. Peter says we are to prepare our minds for action. Paul again says we serve the law, law of God with our minds to the Ephesians, he says, we are to be made new in the attitude of our minds. And we do, he reminds us, we do have the mind of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 2. It's not through the abandonment of the intellect that we are to serve God, but in its consecration and application. We are to think what Christ thought, and we are to think as Christ thought. One of the problems that we have is we, 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 we presume that whenever we come to a point where a decision must be made, God has only one way which is the correct one, and we better find out from Him which is that particular correct one, lest we end up in disaster. But it's a foolish notion. Often there are a, 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 one of a number of choices before us. And what we need to do is use all our faculties and subjection to Him to determine which is the best. And sometimes, face it, it doesn't really matter to God. I don't think God cares whether you drive a Ford or a Chevy. Yes, He cares about who you will marry, but he more, about, more than the question of who exactly, He cares that the person will be one who will help you to serve Him and love Him. Sometimes people say, I think I married the wrong person. Well, no. 
maybe you need to be the right person for that other person. More than caring about who you will marry, let me repeat, more exactly in the question who exactly you will marry, he cares that the person, he cares that the person will be one who will help you to serve him and love him. When you have when that's your gauge, when that's your understanding, and that shapes your priority, then you're on the right track to doing the will of God. To be sure, God, does indeed guide us. How does He guide? By instructing us. Psalm 25, He instructs sinners in the way. How does He instruct? Partly by shaping our circumstances and partly by giving us wisdom to understanding the teaching of His Word and apply it to our lives so that we will make the right choices because we are, in a general sense, led by God to think after Him and to make His priorities our priorities and, and, and to shape our lives as He would have us shape it. God's guidance is not like some kind of exact directions given by the air traffic controller to the pilot who flies blindly through the clouds, but it's more like the directives and the advice that you get from counselors. Well, if you choose that, this might be the result. If you make that a priority, this might be the result for you. Seeking God's guidance is not like practicing divination or consulting oracles and astrologers and clairvoyants for information about the future, but rather it's comparable with everyday thinking through alternative options in given situations to determine the best course open for us. The one that we know God would actually rejoice in. And then God's Word is not used as a kind of uh, a lottery ticket, nor is it designed to instruct us by shreds and scraps which are detached from the real context and have no particular significance from God, but God's Word is to furnish us with principles and to redirect our hearts and minds so that in this way it might influence us and direct our conduct. And, as, and for those who believe that all things come not by chance but by God's fatherly hand, how can we take one or two things as being especially directed to God? It's as if everything else is, is in man's hands, but now this one thing will, will determine exactly what God wants. Who says so? What is more, if we should be inclined to believe that our inner impressions, our occasional hunches and intuitions are really the voice of God telling us exactly what to do, we should consider as well that such impressions and intuitions can come from any one of a number of sources. From such murky sources as wishful thinking or fear or psychological disorders, or hormonal imbalances, or satanic delusions, as well as from God. Confidence that one's impressions are God-given and crying out again and again, God told me, God told me, is no guarantee that God really told you, even when you persist.
If the scriptures are sufficient, such communication is unnecessary. On the other hand, if such communication is actually necessary, uh, then every Christian would be a potential author of scripture. Nor must we let ourselves be trapped into the view that a strong or overwhelming feeling is necessarily directly from God. Many mistakes have been made. Many crimes have been committed because people were, were deeply convinced that it had to be done and it was God's will and it just must happen. The correctness of our views cannot always be decided by the way we feel about them. To be sure, what we need instead in order to be able to, be make, to make decisions which conform to the will of God is that we first of all be transformed by the grace of God. What is needed is what Paul talks about in Romans 12 verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. If the world is shaping your, your, your thinking, if the world is shaping your priorities, if the world is shaping who you want to be and what you want to do, you've got a problem. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What Paul seems to be saying is that if we are to live as God would have us live, it's not so much a matter of finding a text here and a text there, or of finding an indication from God there or here, as it is a matter of being totally and completely transformed. The new person in Christ, this is what the Spirit does, makes you a new person who has been entirely shaped by the Word, living according to its norms, with a view to its goals, and according to its standards. If our life is Christ and Christ is our life, then so often we will not need a prompting here and a prompting there, but when it matters, it will be clear to us again and again, what is the way of obedience and what is the way of disobedience? Such a mind will be enriched by experience, strengthened by interaction with other Christian minds, and sensitive to every biblical guideline. How is it then that God leads us? There are several ways, no doubt. First of all, the Scripture helps us. The, scripture, the, the Spirit leads us by helping us understand the biblical guidelines which we must keep the biblical goals at which we must aim, and the biblical models that we should imitate. Secondly, He leads us through prayer, enlightening our path and brightening our way. Thirdly, He leads us through the advice of other Christians with more years of experience and more studied in the Scriptures than ourselves, giving us wisdom as to how we can best follow biblical teaching. And fourthly, He leads us by giving us the desire for spiritual growth and for living God's glory. And lastly, by making us delight to do God's will. It's true indeed, many so-called problems of guidance are not really problems of guidance. In most cases, you know what God wants you to do. You know what is His will and His pleasure and what would be in the best interest of the kingdom and the church and everything else. But what you need is the willingness to do exactly what you know God wants you to do. 
The real difficulty, despite our protests about a need for more light, is that we are not too thrilled about what doing what is His will. We want our own will. The real problem is an unwillingness to submit to His, to his will. Wrote one experienced pastor, I can say from experience that 95% of knowing the will of God consists in being prepared to do it, whatever it is, before you even know what it is. Being prepared to do it. So what we need to pray for, it comes down to our hearts, it comes down to conversion, it comes down to wrestling out our lives before God and just submitting them to God. What we need to pray for is not a further disclosure of the will of God, but a change in our attitude so that we will like that which is clearly the will of God and delight in doing it. And that's, of course, the path that our catechism wants to set us on. It's exactly what the catechism struggles with. It says the real problem is our unwillingness. Therefore, we, we pray, Father, help us to deny our own will. Deny your own will. And when we know your will, O God, as we so often do, help us to just do it without any murmuring, without any backtalk. Do you want to fit into the new heaven and the new earth where you, everything will be subject to God, nothing will be contrary to His will, nothing contrary to His word? Well, begin living like that. Why not? Do you really think the blessing in your life will come by choosing your own direction and your own will, or will it come from walking in God's way? The catechism says, God, what you have to do is, is make us like the angels, because those angels, they are great teachers. What do the angels live for? They live for the glory of God. Day by day, they sing His praises already in this life. We don't see them, but they're there already in this life. They're busy just doing exactly what God wants them to do on behalf of His people. They're ministering servants, as Hebrews, for us. Day by day, they are faithfully busy following His commands, obeying His will, so as to enhance His glory and praise. Father, make us like the angels, as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Great teachers, those angels. What you need is a complete reorientation of our lives, a reorientation in which we come to the realization the purpose for which we are created is not our own happiness. There's the problem. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody makes a God out of their own happiness. I want to be happy God. But you don't live for your happiness. You live for the glory of God. Ask the Reformed Confession, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And in that you will find your happiness. The glory of God is to be the number one determining factor in the Christian's life. And so the question that needs to be asked again and again is not, will this course of action increase my happiness and my well-being and maybe my profit. But will this course of action actually further the glory of God? Does it please Him? 
Does it praise Him more than all those other actions? And to be sure, living for God's glory and allowing all our actions to be shaped for the cause of His glory is not always going to mean happiness and pleasantries for us. It might mean suffering. It might mean pain. Paul says to Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life will suffer. Jesus said, take up my cross and follow me. He wasn't talking about a walk in the park. He wasn't talking about a cruise. He was talking about a walk to the day of their death. Everybody who took up a cross went to die. But this is the life of the people of God, life of the child of God, to rejoice in doing what God wants. You see it in Jesus. What did he live for? The glory of God. And it was a way of suffering and hardship. When he washed the feet of Peter and his disciples, he said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And it meant the cross, suffering, service. Paul says we should not please ourselves. Why not? Because Christ did not please himself. Apostle Paul begins that tremendous passage of Philippians 2 about the Christ who emptied himself, made himself nothing by saying, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This is the way. As Christians, we never have the right to put our own interests first. There is that very real possibility that God's will, if we will listen to it, may involve a downward rather than an upward motion, demotion rather than promotion, suffering before glory. Entry to the Christian life is through the narrow gate, the gate too narrow to allow us to bring the baggage of our own egos through it. Instead, we do like the angels, serving day by day to the glory of God, and we are found in prayer. Lord, I know it will not be necessarily easy for me, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that you are pleased, that you are glorified. My heart, my life is at your disposal, O God. And then, Lord, by your Spirit, when I know your will, when I know what pleases you, please help me to just do it.